Welcome to Exploring the Enneagram with Dr. E, featuring your host, Dr. Deborah Egerton. In this program, we take a look at how you can begin to see how you show up in the world by looking at your Enneagram personality type, improving your relationships, and so much more. Now, here is Dr. Deborah Egerton. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm happy to be with you today, wherever you are in the world. And it is so wonderful to bring this particular episode of Exploring the Enneagram with Dr. E to you. Today, I have one of my most very special guests in the whole world with me, my dear friend and colleague, Beatrice Chestnut. B, as you well know, if you follow me or have studied with me, is uh, one of the people that I always hand you her books, not just because she was kind enough to put my name in one of them, (laughs) but because her books are amazing and her work is amazing. Uh, Beatrice is a bright light and a uh, just a a shining spirit, uh, always there to sort of guide us on the path of the Enneagram. And if you ever have an opportunity to study under her or, you know, you're trolling around on the internet looking for someone's uh, work to listen to, a podcast or um, on iTunes or on Google or anywhere, uh, YouTube videos, I always recommend that people listen to B because that's where you're going to get the real deal. So with that being said, I would like to introduce Beatrice Chestnut. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so happy to have you. And having you, it's just like, you know, uh, bringing home my good friend and let's just hang out and watch some chick flicks and have some fun conversation. But today we're talking about something that we both love so very much. And I would not be doing what I want to do most in the world if I wasn't talking to you and sharing it with everyone. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Oh, it's my pleasure. You've been a very good friend, just generally, but also a great partner in the Enneagram work. Thank you, B. Um, you know, I have had access to you as a friend. And because of that, it's been very interesting to have the experience of knowing some things about you that I realize not everyone gets the opportunity to do that. One of the things that I'd like to ask is, um, how exactly did your Enneagram journey begin? Well, my journey began in uh, 1990 with the Enneagram. Um, I definitely wasn't looking for it. (laughs) It was uh, a surprise in my life. Um, I had been I was about to leave for graduate school in Illinois where I was going to study mass communication and politics. Um, But through a good friend of mine, so one of my best friends from just junior high and high school was a guy named David Daniels. Um, And very sadly, he died suddenly, unexpectedly in an accident in New York City in uh, March of 1990. And... I, that brought me in, in close touch with his family. And his father was also named Dr. David Daniels, who is a psychiatrist based at Stanford. And so I had occasion to spend a lot of time with him. And he had just gotten into the Enneagram uh, two years prior to that. And it was, he was talking about it all the time. It, he was describing it as, as his calling. Uh, and so we would frequently talk about the Enneagram just over dinner in a casual way. And one night he said that he thought I might be a two. And so I took Helen Palmer's first book home and, and read all about what it meant to be a two. And I was just completely shocked. Uh, I never dreamed that anything could describe me that, to that level of depth and accuracy. I hadn't really studied psychology before that, even though I was really interested in people. Uh, psychology always seemed like something sort of boring, where they just applied jargony names to things that were really obvious. Um, so I hadn't had much interest, but when I learned the Enneagram, I was very interested. And 
it really, it highlighted a lot that I knew to be true about myself, but it also told me some things about myself that I didn't really want to admit. And uh, so it, it really launched my journey of self-discovery in a big way, in a way that I hadn't really been planning for. Um, yeah, I did move to Chicago right after that to go to Northwestern, to go to graduate school. And it happened that a cousin of mine who lived in the Chicago area was also very into the Enneagram and also behind, in, very interested in some of the esoteric spiritual sources of the Enneagram. So he gave me a couple of books to read and that, you know, really cemented my interest because it's almost like I had a, I came back to my sense of spirituality through the Enneagram as well as beginning my own personal growth journey. Well, you know, that sounds so, um, just, just so very real and authentic in terms of how an Enneagram journey sort of progresses you know, you get a little bit of information and then you get curious and then you, you pick up a book and read it or you try to meet a person and have discussions about it. And the next thing you know, you're on this amazing path and beginning to learn all about the Enneagram. Uh, it sounds to me like you entered the pathway or opened the door to the Enneagram during a period in, of time in your life where you were looking for something. Would that be a, a good way of putting it? I would say I wasn't looking for anything, which in itself may have been a problem. <laughs> um, I think it, um, the Enneagram came along at a time when I didn't really know there was a problem uh, to be solved. And so the Enneagram sort of introduced me to what the problem was over time, um, which it sometimes does for people. And Luckily for me, I was open and curious enough to start to see uh, that on the one hand, I had strengths that I wasn't fully owning, but also that I had some unconscious parts and blind spots that I really needed to be more aware of. So over time, I think I got very engaged in the Enneagram as a growth tool, but I certainly wasn't really looking for it when, it, when I happened upon it. So based on that, uh, you know, I think the, either we find the Enneagram or the Enneagram finds us. I'm not yeah. quite sure which way that goes. Mm -hmm. uh, but are there some particular points in time where looking at the Enneagram might be particularly useful to people? I think there are different points in a person's life where it would be useful. I think... Um, Oftentimes there is a moment, usually probably in the 30s, where you start to realize that, you know, you're not 25 anymore and uh, things start to get real in one way or another. And I think there's usually a moment at which people kind of make an inward turn or start to get more curious um, of what's going on at a deeper level. Um, I, I think, I think that uh, when I first got into the Enneagram, it was interesting because most of the people that you would see at Enneagram workshops were in their 60s and 70s. So I think for a lot of people, it was people who had lived enough of life that had kind, that kind of could see uh, the value the Enneagram brought in terms of waking them up to maybe what they hadn't done yet that they wanted to do or habits they'd been in for a long time that they were kind of sick of. Um, but I think that, you know, it really it depends on an individual person's path, whether they, they, they you know, come on it at, at their midlife crisis or a little bit later or a little bit earlier. I think one of the things that's interesting about this moment in time right now is that so many young people are getting interested in it. Uh, I think that's something that's really new. Uh, when I was, you know, when I met it when I was 25. And so not a lot of people my age were interested in it or knew anything about it. But now I think there's kind of an explosion of interest among young people, which I think, you know, is a sign of the times in different ways. Uh, I would agree with that. I'm, I'm very encouraged by the fact that so many young people are uh, becoming interested in the Enneagram, taking it very seriously and taking that inward turn perhaps a little sooner. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and though uh, the times we're living in, it may not seem like that in everyone's everyday existence, but there are people who are taking that in return. And the Enneagram, turns out, is one of the uh, wonderful processes that actually enhances the the uh, value of making the inner turn, you know? Right. So I'm, I'm just, I, yeah, I see a lot of people who find the Enneagram uh, right after a breakup. Sure. Um, and I do see people who the loss of their parents, the loss of a sibling or uh, divorce of any, any type. And some who are dis- disillusioned with, um, I would say, what we would call um, institutional religion. Um, sometimes very disappointed in what the dogma is saying as opposed to what may be going on inside for someone, what they're feeling and experiencing. Um, Do you have uh, a perspective on how the Enneagram might undergird the faith that people may already have? Uh, the faith, you mean in faith in like a higher power or something like that? Yes, yes. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the Enneagram has always been uh, really present in, you know, like for instance, you know, I was raised Catholic and it's been in the Catholic church for quite a while because it's kind of seeped out through the Jesuits in the early days of its modern rediscovery. Uh, um, and today, I really have a sense that a lot of people in faith-based communities are very interested in the Enneagram, and I, this is where I see a lot of young people into it, and I think it has to do with wanting more out of religion uh, than, like you say, just a set of rules or ethics by which to live by, but also as a form of self-discovery in, in and of itself uh, of finding a pathway to one's higher potential or one's divine nature. I think that's really what the Enneagram is in some ways. And it's gratifying to see young people uh, who are involved in religion uh, wanting more out of their religion and finding it in the Enneagram. Right. Wanting to bring it alive, um, to ignite the passion and bring it up off of the pages of a book. Um, and to have to be able to experience uh, what it really means to have faith in a higher power or to have a relationship with a higher power in a powerful way. Right. Um, and, and, and like I said, I, I find that encouraging uh, to see it happening in our youth. You know, uh, yes. so many young people, I hear from them daily, email and uh, text messages and Twitter <laughs> yes. saying, you know, wow, this Enneagram thing's really cool. Tell us more. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for people who have um, discovered the Enneagram uh, and they're going through the crisis of typing, mm. uh, you know, there's the crisis of typing. Some people just mm. find their types or the point of the Enneagram very easily. Other people struggle. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, uh, if I've had one person, I've had a thousand people come up and say, well, you must know what type I am. Just tell me, Mm -hmm. just tell me what I am. Can you speak to that a little bit about the journey of um, finding your type? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, it's definitely a tricky process in the beginning um, some more for some more than others. Um, for me, it was very easy. Um, D- Dr. Daniels just told me he thought I might be a two, and I read it, and it was really obvious. So I still think today the best way to find your type is to see it as a process of self-discovery, to see that as almost the first step is finding your type, and to allow yourself to really read good descriptions of the types and hopefully the subtypes according to the approach, uh, the Naranjo approach, and, and allow yourself to really have it be a process of saying, is this like me or not? Um, uh, what are my, what is my focus of attention? What are my blind spots? You know, and, and to really allow yourself to see to what extent do you resonate with the descriptions? I know a lot of people want to find out what type they are through a test 
uh, I think both because it's a little bit easier and there's a kind of authority that we put on tests outside ourselves. Uh, but so many of the tests are wrong. Uh, much so much of the time, I think most online tests are just not very good. It's very hard to create a good Enneagram test. And even the good ones, um, they can be wrong sometimes, but just the fact of it coming, you getting a certain type on a test can make you think you're that type when really you're not. So I think there's nothing like doing some reading of some really good sources uh, and really having it be a process of figuring out what resonates most deeply. And of course, asking some friends that know you really well and that you trust, they're going to have their own biases. So that's not 100% accurate either. But to get a little bit more of a sense from the people around you of what they see uh, as part of a larger process. Well, you know, one of the things that I love about getting online and doing a search or sending any of my clients to actually um, research, looking at what videos and what have you are out there. And I say, always look for Beatrice Chestnut and look at her panel work mm -hmm. um, because that really illuminates so much of what people need to hear and understand about type. So yeah. I'm, st I'm still recommending that right in front of your face. And I do mm -hmm. it a lot behind your back. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, panels is a great way to find out your type because even more than reading a description in a book, when you hear three or four or five people talking about their type, it really comes alive. And sometimes it's just clear, okay, these are my people. Uh, these people are telling my story. They're speaking my language. Right. Um, and so I think I'm glad you mentioned that because I think panels are an excellent way to figure out what type you are. Well, you know, I think about that. And of course, my husband and your buddy, Gene, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I will, I'll never forget that it was a panel experience for him where he ran up onto the panel with the nines and said, these are my people. <laughs> yes, yes, there's that feeling. Yeah. There is that feeling, you know, yeah. I'm finally, not only am I in the right apartment building, but I've finally found the right apartment. Yes, so great and he's people. good people and those are good people. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's worked out really well for him. Um, B, when someone reads your work and, um, B's books are absolutely amazing. The Complete Enneagram and Nine Types, The Nine Types of Leadership. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, both of these books, uh, when I give them to people that I coach or any clients that I have, they can find themselves in those books um, in, a, in a way that is very different from some of the other works that are out there. And it appears to be because your subtypes just nail, it just nails it for them. Mm -hmm. And um, I would really love for our listeners to get just a brief experience of the subtypes, why you went into that work. And if you could just sort of walk us through the subtypes, that would be wonderful. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I learned the Enneagram in 1990 and in my early training, I went through the Palmer Daniels Enneagram Professional Training Program. It was an excellent program. Um, but the subtypes, when I, in the first 14 years of my Enneagram study, they never really came alive for me. I never really found them useful. They were a little confusing um, because different authors spoke about them in different ways and called them different things by different titles. So I was never that interested in the subtypes, to be honest. But then in 2004, Claudio Naranjo, who is one of the seminal authors uh, in the modern Enneagram movement, really gave us the, our, the main descriptions of the nine types that we use today all over the world. Um, he came to, the, to an International Enneagram Association conference and did three mornings on the subtypes with about 14 or 15 of his colleagues. And they taught, he went, he ran through describing the 27 subtypes. Uh, and of course the subtypes are uh, the three versions of each of the nine types you get when you take account of the fact of the instincts, uh, that we all have these three instincts for self-preservation, for social relationships, for one-to-one -one bonding or sexual relationship. And 
each of, we all have all three of those, but in each one of us, one of those is dominant. And so there are three kinds of ones, three kinds of twos, three kinds of threes, depending on whether your uh, self-preservation or social or sexual instinct is sort of dominates your experience. And so there are really 27 types, and I hadn't really understood these at all until 2004 when I heard Naranjo's updated descriptions. And they really uh, blew my mind because um, it was, I had a revolution in my own self-understanding through learning I was not only a two, but a self-preservation two. Uh, and I didn't know that at all prior to that, to that conference. I had sort of thought I was a sexual too, because again, the, the way you find out what the descriptions are was pretty vague at that point. So I knew I didn't really know. And when they described what a self-preservation too was, and they helped me see that in myself, it was a total shock because it opened me up to a whole level of unconscious experience that I had not been in touch with. So the subtypes, um, are more specific, more nuanced versions of the main type. They offer a lot more detailed and uh, information about the three versions of each of the types. And uh, if, you, if you know your Enneagram type and you're familiar with the Enneagram, you know that sometimes there's a mystery because you may look different than someone who has your same type. Uh, and the, the subtypes, I think, really describe why that's true and how you can be the same type as someone else, but be uh, very different depending on which instinct, instinctual drive is more prominent in your, in your experience. Well, tease us a little bit. I know that it, it won't be possible to go through all nine types, mm -hmm. but can you give us a description of a couple of the types using the subtype description just to show the, the nuances, the differences between when you're looking at the subtypes, how we show up differently in the same type. Sure, sure. So um, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll start with your type. I'll start with one. Uh, so a lot of ones in my early years would ex express um, frustration that the one was always described as the perfectionist because they would say, well, I'm not really a perfectionist, but I'm a one. Well, the subtypes really highlight why this is the case. Um, the self-preservation one is the, the real perfectionist. They're perfecting everything in their world. They see themselves as very imperfect, uh, whereas social ones, as Naranjo would say, are perfect. Uh, and sexual ones perfect other people. So you have this kind of focus going in three different directions. Um, and for instance, self-preservation ones are more critical of themselves than they are of other people. Sexual ones are more critical of other people than they are of themselves, even though they can also be self-critical. The three different ones all have different relationships to the passion of anger. Um, Self-preservation ones repress it the most and they tend to be warm and friendly, even though they're internally very self-critical and but they repress their anger a lot. Uh, social ones repress it halfway. They're a more intellectual type. They're someone who um, tries hard to find the right way to do things or the best way to do things and then model that for other people as a way of being of service to the group or the community. Uh, modeling good ethical ways of doing things or the right way. Um, and then sexual ones tend to be more in touch with anger. Um, they don't repress it as much, although they do sometimes. They tend to be a little more overtly angry. They express uh, desires more. They uh, have kind of an energy or a zeal for reforming society or, or perfecting other people. Uh, so there are three different, very different characters within one type. Um, I can also give you the example of threes. Um, threes, uh, most of the books, uh, if you read uh, that they just have descriptions of the nine types, most of those books describe just the social three. 
and not the self-preservation or the sexual three, uh, which are very different. And that was one of the things that got me really interested in this approach is like, well, wait a minute, like there's people being left out of these type descriptions. And so if you have uh, had a difficult time, you know, finding your type, it may be because your type is one of the subtypes that doesn't always get described in, in sort of the mainstream version of the type. So the self-preservation three is a three that not only wants to look good, you know, threes are oriented towards success and having a good image, um, but self-preservation threes want to be good, uh, not just look good. And so they want to be the good model of what it's like to, to be whatever they are. Um, so they can even look, they can look a little bit like ones. Um, although while ones describe having uh, an internal sense of what the right way is to do something, just sort of an inner knowing, a gut sense, uh, so, uh, self-preservation threes decide what the right way to be is or what the good way to be is by sort of through an unconscious sort of accessing of, uh, of, of what the good thing is by social consensus. So they kind of look out at the community and they have this way of sensing what people see as good. Uh, but that's a self-preservation three is also the hardest worker. You have someone who wants to be productive, but is also fueled by the self-preservation instinct. So there's a focus on material security and a sense of never having enough of material security. So they tend to work very hard. They have the hardest time slowing down. And interestingly, they have vanity for having no vanity. So vanity is the fixation of threes. And these are people who want to want other people to see them in a positive light, but don't want to self-promote or brag in any way. They see that as bad form. You know, you, you, being good means not being vain. And so uh, you don't want to blow your own horn in any way. And yet they want other people to see them uh, as having a good image. Uh, but it's someone who... For instance, you know, achieves a level of success and buys a nice car, but then is embarrassed about driving the nice car and trades it in for a Prius. Um, and so, not that a Prius isn't a nice car, but um, but just the BMW is sort of embarrassing to drive for the self-preservation three. Not so for the social three. The social three is someone who is more obviously vain, is someone who likes to be on stage and likes the applause of the crowd and really wants to be recognized in the social sphere. Um, so the social three is a three that's more competitive, that's more aggressive, uh, that is, has more of a corporate mentality. Uh, like a sense for what what sells and doing whatever it takes to make something look really good and so it sells. But unlike the self-preservation three, it doesn't have to be good. You know, it just has to look good. Right. Uh, right. And then the sexual three is different again. It's, it's a, a more of a pleaser, someone who's a little bit more like a two, um, someone who focuses a lot on relationship, on other people viewing them as attractive, not only in the physical sense, but in a larger sense. Uh, they're people who tend to really support other people. So they succeed not through their own accomplishments, but by supporting other people's success. They tend to be a little bit more shy uh, and also a little more emotional, uh, but more focused on relationship and being good cheerleaders for other people and, and helping people succeed in ways that make them feel good without it having to be all about themselves. Well, you know, B, when you first started talking about uh, the three subtypes and you talked about ones um, and, eh, you know, like you, initially I was not that interested in the subtypes and then you came along and right. we were talking about these subtypes and um, I was sharing with you that I really didn't pay very much attention to the subtype because I didn't see the value add until you started talking about the three different types of ones. Mm -hmm. And I listened to you talk about the um, self-pres one, and I thought, eh, no, that's not me. And I listened to you talk about the sexual one, I thought, eh, yeah, no, that's not me. And I was about to delete the uh, social one because you said the social one is perfect. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's so not me, I'm not perfect. I don't mm -hmm. think I'm perfect. And when you began to talk about how social ones sort of want to role model what is right 
And I've shared with you and I'll share with our listeners the story about how I realize when you go to a nightclub and you have someone who's performing and that person is standing up there singing their heart out and everybody's just chatting, not paying the poor performer mm. any attention at all. Mm. And so I know I, I, the first time it really hit me, um, I heard your words saying, you know, the, the social one is going to show you the way. And I just had to laugh because I realized that I was making myself sit up straighter and then I was leaning in, you know, like I'm really just listening to every note that's coming out of this person's mouth, every word. And I'm kind of shifting in my chair to get other people to see this is the way you pay attention to someone who's trying to entertain you. And it was hilarious. It was hilarious when I realized I do this all the time. <laughs> when I see other people just sort of ignoring someone or, you know, talking in church or um, chatting through uh, the, the, the speech or the toast at a wedding or uh, a presentation's about to begin and the facilitator wants your attention and people won't fall silent. And my body just goes into this automatic posture of, let me show you what you should be doing in this moment. And mm -hmm. it's so funny. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I said to myself, okay, I got, I, I've got, I got to give it up for B. She's got me nailed. <laughs> yeah. 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 Most, most ones, they don't, most social ones don't relate to that description of being perfect. Right. Because it wouldn't be good to see yourself as perfect. Right. Uh, that's, that's not very one-ish. Um, but it's usually, I, I've come to see that that's a description sort of from the outside you know, exactly. and, and that social ones never set out to think they're perfect or even convey that in any way. And yet there is this sense of wanting to find the, the best way to be. And then almost as a service to others, mm -hmm. uh, really teach them how to be that way or, or demonstrate, uh, as a good role model does how, how, to, how they should conduct themselves you know right well it's hilarious when you catch yourself in the act of doing it i just yes. <laughs> it, was, it was like you were sitting on my shoulder and peek go away go away <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to know this truth i about don't myself. i don't and now i know it and i can't not know it <laughs> right right all i can do is choose the options so um the subtypes have been very helpful uh to me with working with my clients because it helps them to actually find their type and be able to relate to their type, particularly for the people whose types have been sort of left out of the description. Mm -hmm. And one of those types uh, seems to be what you call the sunny four. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, this is what really um, shocked me when I learned this approach to the subtypes is the self-preservation four is a type that I had never heard of before ever described in any Enneagram forum. And, you know, I, when I learned the subtypes, I'd been around the Enneagram world for 14 years and I had never heard of this type. Uh, and so it's a four that doesn't look like a four uh, because it's a four that doesn't talk about their feelings. You know, most people understand that fours are people who are probably one of the most emotional types and are pretty in, in touch with their emotions and will talk about how they feel pretty readily. Uh, and there's a focus on suffering too. And sometimes they'll focus on how they're not enough or uh, how they're special. And there's a lot of focus on uh, sharing all about that. And sometimes there can be a melancholy uh, feeling to, to the person in terms of uh, how they are. Well, that's more the social for and the self-preservation four is a four that internalizes suffering and that um, holds things in and puts on kind of a, a happy face, even if that's not how they're feeling inside. Oftentimes, self-preservation fours got the message in childhood that um, their people around them didn't really want to hear about their, their, their painful feelings, that they only wanted to see the happy feelings or they often got a, a message that they needed to be stoic and strong in the face of, of emotion. So it's usually people who relate to feeling a lot inside, but not sharing very much uh, with others about how they feel. 
Uh, and again, there's even a stereotype about fours that they're too emotional or that their, their emotions are problematic and that they're always talking about them. So this is a four that's not really like that. It's a four that, um, that, that is, looks a little bit three-ish sometimes, a little bit one-ish, but, but often feels uncomfortable communicating about their deeper feelings. And they usually say that they only talk about their feelings with a very few people in their lives, like maybe one or two or three people they really trust a lot. And people who've learned that other people, uh, if you want to connect with people, it's easier sometimes to share more of your lighter feelings or your happier feelings. So that's why I've come to call it a sunny four. Even some of my self-preservation four friends even get mistaken as sevens. Right. who are probably more positive feeling toned people of all the Enneagram types. Exactly. I've heard many, many uh, people since your work came out um, who thought they were sevens uh, go, oh my God, I can't believe this. I am not a seven, I'm a four. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at the same time, they suspected that there was something or quite a bit about the seven description that did not quite fit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, the sunny four, I think was a real breakthrough. And uh, for me personally, it was very helpful because I had quite a few sunny fours that were um, the self-press fours that were, were just sort of lost. Um, and they were trying to follow a seven path. So it's right. very interesting, very, very interesting. And I thank you from all of us in the Enneagram world who have had the experience of helping someone find their correct type and space and where they fit for bringing that out the way you have mm -hmm. been very helpful. Thanks. So B, from your perspective, um, there's always going to be some obstacle that people encounter when they're starting to learn the Enneagram, uh, something that will either pull you in the curiosity and you'll keep going or something that shuts you down and makes you back off. Um, and those obstacles can be the difference between someone engaging the journey in a way where they really grow and come you know, outside of their comfort zone and go deeper into the work, uh, or mm, they lose another 10 years before they are willing to re-engage or try again. What words of wisdom can you uh, put out there for people who maybe want to start on the Enneagram journey, but they are a little bit afraid of it? Mm -hmm. um, that's a really good question. I think that, um, as, as a friend of mine says about the Enneagram types, there's an ick factor to the types. You know, it's not all good news when you read about your type. And I think so many people only want to hear the good stuff. I can't tell you how many people said to me when they heard I was writing a book, make sure and accentuate the strengths, you know, and it's true that we all have strengths and gifts and it's important for us to get in touch with that. However, um, we also have a shadow, you know, and we, when you learn about your Enneagram type, you will read about things that don't make you feel good. Uh, and so I think it's important to uh, expect that and to see that, even that as a positive, uh, to see that real growth only comes when we're really willing to face the parts of ourselves that we don't feel so good about. Uh, now, in the end, it's, it's a good thing because, you know, facing the shadow, integrating blind spots owning parts of yourself that you haven't been so proud of. That's how we reach our higher potential. You know, that's how we become who we really are is by a kind of open-minded acceptance of both our strengths and our flaws. And, and to be very, to learn to love yourself no matter what, I think is part of the point. So um, I think it's important just to know that you, it, you, not everything you read about yourself through the Enneagram will engender positive feelings and that it may make you want to either, um, you know, devalue the Enneagram as a tool or just say, this isn't for me. And certainly everyone needs to make that choice for themselves about their own path to growth. 
Um, but I would just say stick with it if you can and try to see it as an exercise in self-acceptance and, and get more interested uh, in learning, in taking just a learning uh, and a growth mindset so that you can recognize that it's only by, as Jung said, facing the shadow that we really um, come home to all of who we can really be. And so that's just a part of the process. And I think it certainly helps when people are motivated to grow. I think you need motivation because it's not an easy process. Um, and to see it as the challenges that come with discovering who you, you know, what, what, what your habitual tendencies have been uh, as something that is going to ultimately uh, expand your world and your sense of yourself. I can see that. Um, something that I often say to um, the people that I work with is that the quality of your life and your relationships uh, is directly uh, connected to the depth of your soul that you're willing to touch. Right. And, um, you know, I know that in my personal Enneagram journey, which is an ongoing journey, I don't think there is a destination, it's just a journey. Uh, and as I engage that journey with other people, I can readily admit that when I discovered my type, I curled up in a little ball and cried. <laughs> yes, yeah. I really did. I didn't, I didn't find my type as much on the high side. Mm -hmm. um, because it talked too much about perfection. Mm -hmm. But my heavens, when I looked at, you know, some of the blind spots and the things that I really had to wake up to, um, there I was, you know, mm -hmm. that mirror was just, I was looking right back at myself. Uh, but it's been worth every step of the journey. Every tear has been a yeah. tear that needed to be shed. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, with people like you out there in the field uh, to teach and to guide so many that will come to the Enneagram and engage on this journey. Um, the, the benefits, I just can't even begin to enumerate them. I can't even articulate them. So thank you once again for everything that you do. Um, B, I want to ask you um, uh, an interesting question because I found uh, some of this in my experience and the experience of people that I coach. Um, there seem to be always some, some surprises that kind of bubble up once you start studying the Enneagram, some things that you learn about yourself that you really didn't know, oh. or some shift in perspective, some inner shift that you make that you didn't even recognize the original position or perspective that you were holding on to. Can you speak a little bit about the surprises that bubbled up maybe for you? Sure. Um, I think one of the earliest ones was when I read that first chapter in Helen's book um, that twos were manipulative. And that was a surprise for me because again, as a two, I want to see myself in a positive light. I'm so nice and friendly and supportive. Um, but what I realized is that was really true. And when I realized what manipulation really is, it's kind of moving things around uh, sort of without being noticed to try to get what you want indirectly rather than directly. I learned so much about myself because I realized I did that all the time. Um, and it's, it seemed like a bad word, but when I really looked into what it really meant, um, I, it was true of me and it taught me a lot about how much I was afraid of just asking for what I wanted directly uh, all the the fear I had around having needs and expressing them. And so the way that I would resort to trying to manipulate people to get what I wanted and at the same time thinking consciously I would never do anything like that. So that was uh, a really, really big uh, eye-opener for me. Um, I think just the whole idea of what pride is, is was really surprising, um, you know, because up until I discovered my Enneagram type, what I had been consciously aware of is always feeling not good enough, you know, having low self-esteem and feeling like I always wanted people to like me, but I was never achieving that, <laughs> you know, I would always see how I needed people to like me more, or how they didn't like me. Um, and so to, to, to see pride as sort of a need for importance or self-elevation 
I really didn't see what that meant for a while, but when I did, then I started seeing it everywhere, you know, a kind of internal self-elevation and need, a need to be important. So that's so strong that you kind of make yourself more important than you actually are inside yourself and, and from your own perspective. But then of course the sad part of that is then you don't take in how important you actually are to people. You know, you're always wanting more. I always, I always need to be more important than I am or more well-liked. And then I don't really receive like how I am important, you know, maybe not as a superhuman level of importance, but as a human, very positive, wonderful level of importance. So I've been working on ever since trying to go for, uh, for humility, which is about not necessarily seeing yourself as less than, but seeing yourself as who you really are and not needing to be bigger than you are. And of course, as a self-preservation too, I often make myself smaller than I am. And that's been another big thing is how afraid I am to step into my power uh, and how, how, I, it, how, how much I make myself small as a defense uh, kind of sometimes out of fear of pride, of, of wanting to be important, but finding out I'm not important enough. And so I proactively make myself less important. Uh, but that's not good either, you know, because, you know, you need every person's voice is important in the world in, in the way that it is. And so um, recognizing that, that on the one hand, while it's not good to need to be more important than I am, it's also not, not healthy to make myself less important than I naturally am. So, so all, all the things around that have been very surprising and, and are, continue to be sort of a, a, a path of growth. Well, thank you for your um, willingness to be vulnerable enough and transparent enough to share that. And I'm sure that that will help many people um, because, you know, we, we, engage on this journey and things happen that are surprising and sometimes disappointing because we don't know what we don't know. And then when we do know it, it can put us in a very uncomfortable space. I, I know that was true for me as for you. Um, but when you do know, then you can exercise some options, you know, then at least you know um, what it is that maybe needs to shift a little bit or how to do some work around those things that have you've been so blind to. Um, and we do know that people will give us some feedback, but we can deflect that feedback by being defensive. Right. So it's so very helpful be when you share that um, because it, it's difficult to to look at those blind spots once someone puts them right in front of us. And the Enneagram certainly will do that. Right, right. Yeah, that's what it's really good at. <laughs> Excellent at doing that. So B, tell us what is next on the horizon for you? I know we have two books that are out there, but you're doing some other fascinating things. Can you share some of that with us? Sure, sure. I've uh, created an Enneagram school with a good friend and colleague of mine. <laughs> Um, it's called, we're calling it Chestnut Pius Enneagram Academy and with Uranio Pius, I've, we've started this school that we offer different workshops and, and, uh, retreats, uh, we're dedicated to using the Enneagram for deeper inner work for those who are up for it and also teaching professionals how to integrate the Enneagram in a effective way in their per professional practice. So... I started an Enneagram school with a good friend and colleague of mine, Uranio Pius. We're calling it Chestnut Pius Enneagram Academy. And we're dedicated to offering uh, opportunities for people to do deep inner work using the Enneagram. We have a series of three inner work retreats. And we also teach workshops to professionals who want to learn to integrate the Enneagram into their professional practice in a deeper and more effective way. Um, and we do different kinds of workshops uh, here and there as well. And we're also working on um, uh, our uh, creating and improving our Enneagram online platform. 
Uh, it's going to be called Chestnut Pious Online. Um, we're, my, my partner, Uranio, he has an incredible online platform now called Mundo Enneagrama. So we're, um, we're rebranding that and we're adding more of me in and more of us. And so that's also a work in progress in terms of uh, making it uh, the, the, the right, uh, the right um, online piece to, uh, which, which will be kind of a complement to the live workshops and retreats that we offer. Uh, we're also writing some things. We're starting a podcast in a month or so and uh, working on just developing more and better content for people who are interested in using the Enneagram in a, in a, in a deep way. Well, I was going to ask, what do you do in your free time? <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't sound like you have much free time. Not these days. We're traveling a lot. We get, we're really lucky to be able to teach in different parts of the world. Uh, meet amazing people who are on the Enneagram path of development. And uh, so, yeah, I haven't had too much spare time lately, um, but, uh, but really love what I do, luckily. Well, B, it's been absolutely delightful talking mm -hmm. to you today. <clears throat> Any closing thoughts? Well, I, I want to appreciate what you're doing. I think that, uh, you know, you are one of the people I admire most in the Enneagram work just because of the, the deep and ethical and, and thoughtful way that you approach all, everything you do with the Enneagram. So thank you for doing this. I think it's a, it's a great service to the growing Enneagram community out there. And I just think you know, the, the Enneagram movement needs people like you who are really dedicated to using it in the best, uh, the best ways that really create real positive change for people in, in the world. Beatrice, thank you so much for being with us today. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed hearing B. Chestnut talk about the subtypes and a little bit of her journey. I'll be looking forward to bringing B. back in the future and we'll go a little deeper into the subtypes, please be sure to reach out to me on my website at trinitytransition.com. My email address is there. You can send questions and tell me a little bit about what you'd like to hear on this show. Looking forward to being with you again next week, same time, same place, exploring the Enneagram with me, Dr. E. Thank you for listening to Exploring the Enneagram with Dr. E. Please join Dr. Deborah Egerton again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a good week.